0: Um, so it's pretty, uh, pretty sad. Okay, I'm going to give you a, an important tip about life, and this one is for free. So you're listening, it's a very, very important principle. The principle is this, just because you can, doesn't mean you should. You heard this one? It's important, live by this one. Just because you can, doesn't mean you should. Just because you can, wear clothes like that doesn't mean you should. Just because you can put a cat on your back doesn't mean you should. And just because you can do unspeakable things to your poodle doesn't mean you should. And just because you can do stuff with Photoshop I'm sorry, that image will be in your minds like it was for mine for the rest of the week. Doesn't mean you should. And of course, this one is for Johnson Lee, Elder Johnson Lee. Just because you can distill the wonderful aroma of durian into a bottle of perfume certainly doesn't mean you should. Okay, that's just a little bit of fun, but... Um, the Messy Church in the ancient city of Corinth that we've been looking at in 1 Corinthians, they had this problem in spades. That is, they kept thinking, just because we can, it means we should. They kept saying, look, as Christians, we have freedom. We have a right to do this, to do that, to eat this, to do to drink that. Now, you see that um, even back in chapter 6, verse 12. By the way, these are the kind of Bibles you can... Pick up at the back of the the, the welcome desk for free. Just, you know, anytime you don't have a Bible, bring it. um, Grab one of those. But in chapter 6, verse 12, keep your Bibles open. Paul is going to quote them. And one of the things they kept saying was, I have a right to do anything, right? This is how they thought. I have a right to do anything. And in the the chapter we just read in chapter 8, I have a right to eat what I want to eat, when I want to eat. But Paul keeps coming back to the principle, just because you can, it doesn't mean you should. Now, what issue they're dealing with here in chapter 8, in fact, is so important, it takes up three whole chapters. So it goes from 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. We're actually going to look at all three chapters over the next three weeks. This issue has to do with food sacrifice to idols. Now, that is generally not our issue. Now, some of you will have experienced something similar to that. I did as a child because my late grandfather, my dad's dad, um, worshipped Chinese ancestor gods. I remember when I was a kid, went over to his house for dinner. And before we ate the food, it was you know, put on the altar to the ancestor god. Um, so some of you might have experienced that, but many of us wouldn't have. But regardless of whether we experienced this particular issue, it, we can be a lot like the Corinthians. That's the point. Because there's a whole host of things that God in the Bible gives us no specific prohibitions on, or even instructions on, and so in a sense you want to say you can do it, but it comes back to just because you can, should you? Some examples that might come to mind is watching R-rated movies or TV shows, or you know, buying a lottery ticket, or you know taking a bet on Melbourne Cup Day, or doing yoga or um, qigong, you know. In, Uh, going drinking with your mates, um, smoking, tattoos, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? Like, the Bible doesn't say whether you can or can't. So, how do you make decisions like that? What principles guide us? So, 1 Corinthians 8 is going to have a lot more than just on this issue, food sacrifice, idols, and what's more important for us actually are the principles. So, let me pray and then uh, we'll get into it. Father God, help us to wrestle with not just what happened then, but also what we need to hear you say to us today, help us to see clearly that love, doing everything out of love for one another, for your glory, is what we need to live by. In Jesus' name, amen. So yeah, we're back to paper outlines. Um, actually, Zach pages are still happening today. If you still subscribe to it, you'll be able to get it today, but today is absolutely the last day. Um, but paper is good because you can jot down notes easier, I think. Um, Three points, let me go. First point, let's um, recap a little bit. If you were here with us last week, we came back to 1 Corinthians in chapter 7. And as I said last week, 1 Corinthians 7 is a new section where Paul will begin to deal with issues that the Corinthian Christians in first century Corinth, which is in Greece, they raised with Paul. And Paul's responding to them. These were first generation Christians anywhere. Okay. Last week was on marriage and singleness, chapter 7. This week, he's... Switching topics to another topic they raised, which is the idea of food sacrifice to idols. Now, it's important to know that in Corinth, at that time, basically there were three ways in which food was linked to idolatry. Three ways. First way is if you went to a a sort of a, a civic occasion, like a celebration or a feast that often they would have, Um, uh, for important people, by important people, they were likely, these banquets would likely take place in temples and likely to not just have food that's been sacrificed to the temple gods, but also it would involve temple worship as a part of the feast. So that was one way, right? You could be feasting at a temple associated with all the idolatry. The second way the food came in contact with idols was if someone who is not a Christian invited you over to their house sort of like my late grandfather's place. And they've got a little shrine, and they will, as is customary, offer the food to the gods before you have dinner. That's another way in which food was in touch with idols. And then thirdly is actually, if you were to buy meat in Corinth, you couldn't just go to a butcher that had nothing to do with the temple because often meat markets, butchers essentially, were um, tied to temples. And so any meat that you were buying... Will have already been sacrificed and offered to the gods so if you enjoy a little bit of pork a little bit of beef a little bit of lamb doesn't matter what kind of meat it's already been offered and you're just cooking it for yourself and you're christian but that meat has already been offered to idols now paul references all three and as he said it's chapters 8 9 and 10 and in chapter 10 he'll come back to address all three but the question is as a christian who used to have an idol-worshipping background, but now I worship Jesus, who is the only God, what do I do about this? i got to eat, right? It's not just going to the temple for those feasts. What if I don't go to that, but someone invites me over to dinner, and they're non-Christian, and I want to keep a good witness. I want to build relationship. Or, you know, my family needs to eat meat, and I'm buying meat, and it's been offered. What do I do? Now, different Christians in Corinth, in the ancient world, would have responded differently. And there are broadly three groups It's on the overhead for you. they will start with you. Group one, the uninhibited. That is, these were the Christians who said, look, idols are nothing. There's only one God. Jesus has um, given us freedom to eat whatever. So we're just going to go ahead. Any situation, whether it's at the temple, in the private dinner, in the meat market food, we'll just go ahead and do it. Uninhibited, no inhibitions. There'll be a second group that we call the uncompromising. That is, they've decided, look, all of that belongs to the idols. I know idols are nothing, but we're still not going to do it. We're not going to touch it. Okay, So we'd rather just eat vegetables. We're just not going to go to any of these temple feasts. Definitely say no to all the private dinners. Right? Uncompromising. Then the third group we'll call the uncertain. That is, they're a bit confused. Right? They know there's freedom, but there's still so much baggage from their idol-worshiping past. And so they'll use their freedoms as Christians and go along to the feasts or eat the meat, but then feel really bad, feel really guilty, because it brings up all the baggage of what it meant for them before they came to know Jesus. Now, I want you to know, in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul is concerned about groups 1 and 3. The uninhibited and the um, uncertain. And he's particularly concerned about how the uninhibited were impacting the uncertain. Certain how group one was impacting group three, what group one was doing to group three. And he calls group three, um, in verse seven, and verse nine, for example, he calls them weak. But what he means is that they have weak consciences because their consciences will prick up. They'll have feelings of guilt and shame when they go ahead and do these things. As opposed to group one, the unhindered, who will have no conscience issues. You can call them the strong, Well, he doesn't call them that, but you can say weak conscience, strong conscience. And it's group one and three, and especially what group one was doing to group three, that is his concern here. Now, before we go on, let's talk a little bit about conscience. Um, Conscience in the Bible, as most of you probably know, is that internal compass for right and wrong. And it's something that God gives to all people, right? not just to Christians. All people made in his image have a conscience. But here's the thing. According to the Bible, as opposed to a lot of other understandings of the conscience in the outside world, the conscience can't be your absolute guide. That's an internal compass, but it's not absolute. It's not, you know, it's not black and white on all things. Because your conscience can be shaped by your culture, by your peers, by your society, even by your own habits. And so your conscience, as the Bible, can be dulled like a knife that just gets dull. It doesn't, doesn't distinguish right and wrong anymore after a while. Your conscience can even be seared, right? seared like a piece of steak, like, like fire does to a wound and it just makes the skin dead. Okay, uh, You can sear your conscience. Your conscience can be different depending on which culture you were brought up in. So for one culture, something might be right and wrong. For another culture, it may not be an issue and people will have different conscience responses to it on certain things. A conscience can also be oversensitive, and this is important when we come to group three. Oversensitive. Um, and so, for example, sometimes kids, when their parents are arguing or sometimes separating or divorcing, kids feel responsible and guilty about that. It's not their fault, is it? It's important for children to know it's not your fault. But in a sense, they have oversensitive consciences. A conscience can also be undersensitive. Right? You can feel no remorse, no guilt about anything bad. Now, we call, generally call that you know, a social path. or a a psychopath, right? People who have no conscience issues. So I like to think of the conscience like your tonsils. Now, that's a bit of a sensitive issue here because Karen, um, my wife, has had a lot of problems with her tonsils lately. But your tonsils are your first line of defence. Is that right? Yeah, your tonsils are your first line of defence in terms of your immune system. But your tonsils do not always provide an accurate guide because sometimes your tonsils are oversensitive. And that's the case with um, poor Karen and other people who've ever had recurrent tonsillitis. Doesn't matter what happens, your tonsils will get inflamed and actually cause problems. It's oversensitive. Your tonsils can also become undersensitive. That is, if you get your tonsils cut out, you don't have tonsils anymore, right? And so you lose that first line of defense. Tonsils are not absolute, but they're important. They're helpful, and for most of us, it's part of an important part of our immune system. So your conscience is like that. It's that first line of defense, but you've got to see that it's not absolute. For the Christian person, the Bible says the conscience needs to be cleansed, and renewed, and shaped by Jesus. Because it's not our conscience that we ultimately is our guide. It's the Bible. It's God's Word. And so your conscience needs to be educated by the Word of God. So on food sacrifice to idols, on this issue. Group three, the uncertain, have weak consciences. Another way of saying this, consciences at this point are oversensitive, they need to be brought into line with what God's Word says about the reality of idols. That really, idols are nothing. But because so much baggage has happened in their past, it's not something they can work through really easily. It's not like, okay, they become a Christian and suddenly their consciences are... No, no, no. Their consciences are still oversensitive. It's weak. It needs time. It needs God to shape and reshape. But here's the thing. You might be thinking, well, if it's weak conscience, then it's a consciences problem not the problem with right and wrong, and so they should just ignore their conscience. Well, that's not the case, because the Bible says, while the conscience is not absolute, it's such an important part of our nature, especially once you become a follower of Jesus, that it is being renewed and shaped by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit uses it right, to speak right and wrong to us. The Bible says, don't ever deliberately ignore it. It's not absolute. It needs to be shaped by the Spirit, but don't ever deliberately ignore it. Don't ever deliberately act against it. In fact, so strong, uh, Paul says in, in, in Romans 14, that if you did deliberately act against your conscience, deliberately do something that your conscience says no to, whether the conscience is informed, uninformed, weak or strong, it doesn't really matter. To do so is sin. Romans 14. He basically says the same thing here. If you cause a brother to sin against his conscience... That for them is sin, and you are sinning against them because of that, right? So that's the conscience, very serious here. So what's happening here? We're talking about in 1 Corinthians 8, really important, we're not just saying someone sees what group 1 are doing, right, the uninhibited, and they wouldn't do what group 1's doing, but they see what group 1's doing and they're getting a little bit offended and judgy. That's not talking about that situation. That would be a group 2 having a problem with group 1 issue, do you see what I mean? That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about group one and three. It's group three, the uncertain, seeing what group one, the uninhibited, are doing, and then following what group one are doing, group three go on and do it themselves. Maybe because of social pressure. Maybe because they see group one and they think, well, if you're that confident, I maybe should do it too. But in so doing... Because they are uncertain and their consciences are weak, they're acting against their conscience. They've actually gone ahead and done it. That's what's happening here. It's important to keep that distinction. So you see that in verse 10. Have a look at verse 10. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? You see what's going on there? And Paul treats this really seriously. Seriously. Like he's not saying these, Group 3, don't need to have their consciences informed or strengthened. But he has a real issue with Group 1 because it seems like in Corinth, Group 1's attitude is, look guys, get over it. All right, toughen up, buttercup. Should have no issue with it. Get over it. All right, we have a right to do this as Christians. We have freedom. Go ahead and do it and we're just going to do it. If you want to do it with us, Fine. Just get over any guilt feelings you have. And they do this, steamrolling over those in group three who are uncertain, with weak consciences, while group three, uncertain people are suffering. So you see that in verse seven. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. That is, it is made dirty. Verse 11, skip over there. So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is, strong word here, isn't it? Destroyed by your knowledge. See, whether you eat or not is not the primary issue. As I said, there are three different situations that would bring food in contact with idols. We'll see at the end of the sermon, and we'll see clearly in a couple of weeks' time in chapter 10, Paul will come to conclusions about those. He'll give recommendations about those. But in chapter 8, he's not really concerned about the specifics yet. He wants to show you the principle. The principle is far more important. And What's the principle? The principle is that what group one were doing was a massive failure of love. They were failing to love their brother and sister. See verse 12? When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. The issue was love. Okay, so that's my first point. That's what happened then. I want to dig a little bit behind the issues of my second point. And I want to show you first why. Right? Why has this become a problem? Because quite surprisingly, the gospel is the reason why it's a problem. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that's what gospel means, will also be the solution. All right. So why has this become a problem? Well, it's because the good news of Jesus, when it came, it changed everything. So for idol-worshipping pagans, look what the gospel has done. Verse 4. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there's but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. You see what the gospel has done? The gospel has liberated them From all the different gods that the Roman and Greek world worshipped, who are actually no gods, to bring them under the lordship and the worship of one true God. That's liberating. It changes everything. Uh, When Karen and I bought our house in, um, we live in Naui, our house number is number 44. Now, if you are Chinese, four is not a good number. If you go to a place like Hong Kong and China and Taiwan, often there's not even a level four. in in an apartment block, because four sounds like the word death. So number 44 is like death, death. So we bought the house that basically, to a Chinese person, symbolizes death. Now, many people would avoid buying number 44, but we really didn't care, because we're Christians. We're not into superstition, and it's really liberating. So there we are. We've moved into 44 in the last 10 years. We've been fine. We've had a few guinea pigs die, but, you know, that's (laughs) just... Right? So, it's liberating to be a Christian. It's liberating when you know that. And that's what the gospel does. It takes you away from fear of spirits and demons and gods and all that kind of stuff. The gospel also takes you frees you from a religion based on merit and works and laws. I mean, the gospel has boundaries for sure. But within the boundaries, within the lines heaps of freedom. And you know what? The longer you've been a Christian, the more wonderful you realize this is. A lot of newer Christians, and this might be you, um, often after they become a Christian, they're super enthusiastic. They want to know what's next in terms of what's the next rule I need to obey? What's the next thing I need to do? And it often surprises them when I say, look, it's a relationship. It's dynamic. It's liberating. Yes, there are boundaries. There's stuff that you need to know, but you'll grow in that. And the longer you've been a Christian, the more you realize what Jesus brings in this relationship is a lot of freedom. But this kind of freedom and liberation also causes problems, right? Because as you know this, as you know about this freedom, what do you do with that knowledge? And knowledge really is the problem here. As you grow in those kind of knowledge, what do you do with it is the problem. Now you see that this is precisely the problem with group one. Um, And Paul mentions it in verse one and in verse four. He keeps quoting them in quotation mark. You'll see it in your Bibles. We know that. All right, it's all about what they know. But as I said before, what the problem was is they had a massive failure of love. And so the problem we have here is what verse 1 says. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge without love is lethal. Right? It's one thing to say, yes, we have all this freedom in Christ. It's another thing to use that knowledge in an unloving way to steamroll over people who may not have that kind of knowledge. Now, this is a good reminder. Just take a step back. This has nothing to do with food sacrifice or idols. Or, um, those of us who are older Christian, more mature Christian, especially if, you've, if you're a bit of a Bible nerd or you've been to Bible college, you know, those like Hazy and myself and Dom, it's, I think it's a real temptation to, to forget that. Then very much to have more knowledge often just puffs us up. It may actually cause us to be less loving. And especially on issues that you come to see a different and even a more, possibly even more biblical perspective. You know, as you've grown in knowledge, you've seen more of the freedoms that maybe before you didn't see. And, you know, whether you must keep the Sabbath in a certain way, whether you must give 10% of everything, how God might guide you and call you, um, the person in the work of the Holy Spirit, as you've grown in knowledge... Often you start seeing, hey, it's not the way that I used to think, and then you, that starts affecting the way you treat people and deal with people who still think that. Um, we've just had university mid-year um, conferences and annual conferences, and we, they're wonderful, wonderful things. If you've been to one, you've been to them before, they're great. But what I often find is, it doesn't happen in our church so much, but I've been part of churches where young people go along to these conferences, they come back full of good, correct knowledge, but then they'd go back to their church and they'd become that guy or that girl that criticizes everything, right? Because now they're full of all this, this is the right way of reading the Bible. Oh man, my preacher, pastor, he doesn't know how to preach at all. And so I'll go and criticize him. And our church has got all these things wrong and let me be the one to point it all out. Love doesn't do that. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. And that's important, I think, for all of us to remember. Okay, let's come back. As I said, the gospel is the problem in a sense, because the gospel liberates, but the gospel is also the solution because the good news of Jesus, as Hazy's already said, is the great leveler, right? The ground is even at the foot of the cross. See, here's the thing. Knowledge is great, but knowledge cannot define you and define relationships in the church. Imagine if knowledge was the way we would define relationships in the church. Then there'd be all these different levels of Christian based on how much you knew, Yeah? And in order to level up, you better do that course or join that study group or read that book. I'm so glad it's not like that. Knowledge creates hierarchy and levels, but love is the great leveler. And that's why the gospel is also the solution. So look at verse 2. Look what Paul does here with the idea of knowledge. Verse 2. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. He's having a go at those people who think they're pretty good. And notice verse 3, but whoever loves God is known by God. He doesn't say whoever loves God really knows God. He turns it around. He says whoever loves God is known by God. This is a really important twist. He's sort of saying this, what you know is not as important as who knows you. You Got that? What you know is not as important as who knows you. Because who knows you is the gospel thing. Being known by God is not just God knows you. Yes, I know that you are Karen. I know that you are John. No, no, no. Known by God in the Bible is relationship with God. And what's this relationship based on? How does God know you? He knows you just as you are, broken as you are. And yet he comes to die for you and he still loves you no matter what you've done. That's what it's meant to be known by God. See, what I know means that I can feel superior or inferior. Who knows me? That's the great leveler. Because that relationship is purely based on grace. And the gospel creates that leveler. The new lens, as I look sideways at you, at each other, within the church, every single one of you is a brother or sister. You are equally known and loved by God. We may play different roles in the church, but there is no hierarchy in relationship with God. But more importantly, verse 11, this is a brother or sister for whom Jesus paid the ultimate price. Same price he paid for you, he paid for someone else. See, when I'm tempted to steamroll over a younger, less informed, weaker in conscience Christian, I'm to see them as an equally loved, equally redeemed brother or sister for whom Jesus died. And anytime I doubt that, I just kind of have to tell myself, imagine if Jesus treats me The way I want to treat someone else. I mean, imagine if Jesus, who is infinitely superior to me, treats me in the way that I deserve to be treated. He could crush me like a bug. But what does Jesus do instead? He who is the God of the universe, became a man, came to serve me. Even though I am weak and he is superior, he came to die for me, sacrifice for me, lay down aside all of his rights, all of his privileges all of his superiority for me. He doesn't treat me like the way I often treat others. And I wonder if this is the lens you see each other. The most difficult, the most awkward, the most frustrating, the person you find least easy to get along with is someone for whom Jesus died, is your brother and sister. Only the gospel can give you that lens. So my final point, let me apply it to us. Right? The gospel is the problem, but it also provides a solution. So what does it mean for us now? As I said, most of the Christian life is lived in the freedom, right? Within boundaries, but not rule by rule by rule by rule. And that's a wonderful thing. But, as I said, it can, re- can create problems. It can create friction. Historically, there's been lots of issues because of this freedom that churches have disagreed on. Even even determining which are the boundary issues and which aren't—you probably know that some churches will have, you know, different opinions on um, baptism of babies or how churches should be structured and governed and what worship styles are acceptable and so on. All right? So there's lots of those kind of issues within the boundaries, and people disagree, even though Scripture is their ultimate authority. So I don't want to deal with all of them. I just want to come back to some principles and practical solutions and conclusions based on 1 Corinthians 8. The first one is don't overapply. Okay? Some people use 1 Corinthians 8 to apply to every single instance where someone might think differently to you and get offended by what you do. I just don't think it applies to most of those situations. So for example, in some churches if I am the minister and I don't wear a tie, that's a real problem. And people will get offended by it. And people will say, if you're a real pastor, you should wear a tie. Now, whether or not I wear a tie, um, you know, I might decide to do it because I don't, you know, I want to make my message as understandable and I don't want that to be an issue and I might do it. But I just don't think it's a 1 Corinthians 8 issue. See, 1 Corinthians 8 is not about anyone who gets offended at something you do. If it were a 1 Corinthians 8 issue, it would be something like this. I don't wear a tie and so a weaker brother or sister decides that they won't wear a tie but by not wearing a tie would be going against their conscience. Do you see? But that never happens, right? Who doesn't wear a tie against their conscience. Anyway, do you see what I mean? It's not a parallel issue because we're talking about group one and group three, right? Not about group one and group two. Not every instance where someone is offended actually has to do with leading someone with a weak conscience into doing something that is against their conscience, And the other thing to keep in mind with over-applying is 1 Corinthians 8 isn't the end of this issue. As I said, Paul starts in 8 with principles. He'll say a lot more in chapter 9, we'll look at next week. But then really it's at the end of chapter 10 that he'll come back to his conclusions on the issue of food sacrifice to idols. And as I said before, there are three situations where food and idolatry might have been linked And it's in chapter 10 that he'll deal with each one of them. I'm just going to skip ahead and tell you what the answer is. But because these three principles become a really good guideline. At the end of chapter 10, he's going to say this. Firstly, you are free to eat anything unless, number one, it stops you from running away from sin. Okay? As in, let me put it in the positive. Just make sure whatever you do, you are running away from sin. In chapter 10, he'll say, flee from idolatry. Don't be so certain that you who have strong, weak, strong consciences, that you yourself won't fall into idolatry. And so, in fact, he'll actually say, when it comes to that first type of eating, the celebration, the feasts, the pagan temple celebrations, he'll actually say in chapter 10, look, that's a bad idea. Don't do it. Because chances are, even though you think you're strong, you're going to go into that situation and you're going to mess up. right? Don't have anything to do with idolatry. Flee from it. And that's the case with Sin. Any sin. You might be free to watch this, do that. But are you running away from sin? Are you so sure that you yourself won't fall? Second principle, and we saw that in chapter 8, this chapter. Don't, and you'll come back to it in chapter 10. Don't cause another person to stumble. right? Don't cause them to act against their conscience. So you're free to eat. When it comes to the other two ways that food is in touch with idols, he'll actually say, look, if you get an invitation to someone's house and there's food sacrificed to an idol, go ahead and eat it. Don't ask questions about it. If you get um, meat from a meat market and it's been sacrificed, I'll just go ahead and eat it unless it causes someone to stumble. Okay? Unless it causes someone to act against their conscience, then don't do it. Principle number two. And the third principle we'll actually see next week in chapter nine, make sure you do everything you can to help and not hinder evangelism, unbelievers coming to know Jesus. More of that next week. But I want you to see in chapter 8 just how much Paul is willing to pay the price of sacrificing for the sake of others. Look at verse 13, the last verse of chapter 8. He says, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again. Literally, it's, I will never eat meat for all eternity. That's strong. Never, ever, ever for all eternity so that I will not cause them to fall. And I wonder if we have that sort of attitude when it comes to sacrificing our rights for the sake of someone else. So that's the first one. Don't overapply, And see where 1 Corinthians 8 is applied in, <clears throat> later on. But those three principles are helpful. Number two is um, work out when you need to do the hard work. What I mean is that sometimes you don't need to reinvent the wheel. Work out every issue. You know what? Churches all make some decisions on these sort of matters, right? And and shortcut the process. So churches, our church has a policy on whether we baptize babies or not. The answer is we do. We have a particular church governance. We've decided on certain worship styles that are acceptable and not acceptable. We have views on policies on male and female roles. And we've made some of these decisions, right? And you can have a lot of the hard work saved for you. Now, that's not going to suit everyone. It's not even going to suit every conscience. Now, if it becomes a conscience issue for you, come and chat to us about it, because we are willing to discuss it, debate it, with Bibles open. Sometimes we'll even change our policies if we need to. But if after that process, you cannot, in good conscience, belong to a church that has issues that you, in good conscience, can't belong... well you know what, you will go with our blessing to find a church where you can, okay? So I'm not kicking you out, but I'm saying, do you know what I mean? That's what churches do. These are not central issues that the Bible is absolutely black and white about, but our church has done a lot of the hard work for you, and if you belong to this church, you can count on some of the hard work that's been done for you. But you know why the church will not do this on most issues. For example, we have no policy on yoga. Some churches do, they do. We have no policy about whether or not you can go to a, a Buddhist funeral. And if you did go, what you should do with the joustics. Right? And there would be significant differences among us on those. So on those kind of cases, you've got to do some of the hard work yourself. And you may have to do that. And here's a few steps. Firstly, get some advice. Even though as a church we may not have policies on that, chances are your pastors and your elders will have some thoughts on it. Come and talk to us. Make an informed decision. Chat with people who may disagree or think differently. And the most important thing is, whatever you decide on do- doing, don't do it like an arrogant jerk. Right? Don't do it because I've decided that I don't care what, no one, what anyone else thinks, okay? Right? Keep in mind those three principles as you make those decisions. Is my decision going to run away from sin? Is it going to cause someone else to fall into sin? Is it going to help and not hinder evangelism? And then make a decision lovingly and humbly, And probably someone will disagree with you. But you know what? If you've come to that at the end of that, I think that's a pretty good thing. All right? But that'll take a little bit of hard work. Last of all, in everything, remember love and the glory of God. As I said, 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 touches on one issue, but the final summary principle of love and God's glory, that actually should touch every area of our life. Like, There's no area of our life that doesn't Right, get touched by the important principle of how are we loving each other and is this bringing glory to God? Now, just to show you that this is these two things are the anchors, you'll actually find that the first verse of chapter 8 and the last verse of chapter 10 are about this. Remember the first verse of chapter 8? Love, sorry, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. The last verse of this section, chapter 10, he says, Whether you eat or drink and whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Those are the things to keep in mind. How am I loving my brother and sister? Am I making Jesus look good for his glory? Over the last two weeks, almost three weeks now, I've been watching the Tour de France, which is, for most of you, a really boring cycling event that just takes up airtime on SBS. But for some of us who've gotten into it, it's actually really exciting. And what you don't know about the tour is um, it's a team sport, cycling. All right? It really is actually much more of a team sport than a lot of team sports because, here's the thing, in every team of eight riders, there may be one guy only who has a chance to win. And so the other seven guys already go into the tour knowing their job is to sacrifice all of their ambitions, all of their energy, all of their own rights and privileges for that one guy. Right? You're going in knowing you're not going to win because as a team the seven work for the one that's huge it's not even like basketball it's a team sport but everyone gets the score everyone gets the rebound and you know everyone gets a part of it no you're the seven you get all the pain and none of the none of the victory just for that one guy to have the victory but if you don't do it like that if every team member races for themselves the team will end up missing out on the glory and everyone will lose our team captain is Jesus right he models for our sacrifice. What a great team, team captain. But our job is to be the seven. In everything in life, our rights, our ambitions need to be laid at his feet. We're here to make him look good. It's for his glory. And nothing makes him look better than when we love each other. And so, our job is to sacrifice ourselves for one another. Because Jesus says, doesn't he? By this All people will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. So what are we willing to do to sacrifice our rights and privileges for his glory by loving each other? Let's pray.